because I love this country, but I'm also willing to reconcile that with the fact that this country has deep flaws and that the promise of this country is unfulfilled. So much of the challenge that we have right now is the challenge of identity, of tribe, of dignity, uh, and misunderstanding. This is the way that I define the American dream. It means that, that every successive generation can do better. Right? It's not you know chicken every pot and car in every port. It's that you believe that you will do better than your parents and that your children will do better than you. I'm Ian Allen, and this is Steel Man, Straw Man. This week on Steel Man, Straw Man, we are fortunate to speak with Representative Jason Crow. Jason represents the 6th District in Colorado and serves as the co-chair of the Four Country Caucus. This bipartisan group of veterans work alongside With Honor, an organization founded and led by former Marine Rye Barcott, built to fight polarization in Congress by supporting principled bipartisan veterans. Jason served with the 82nd Airborne in Iraq and the 75th Ranger Regiment in Afghanistan. As a freshman congressman, he was also an impeachment manager for President Trump's first impeachment and was in the gallery in Congress on January 6th when a mob ransacked the Capitol threatening to hang then-Vice President Mike Pence. The congressman was one of several members, staff, and media up in the House gallery when insurrection is stormed into the Capitol. It may be hard now, almost three years later, to remember how disturbing the images were, but Jason's stories were jarring. I'm hearing reports that Pence caved. I'm telling you, if Pence caved, we're going to drag through the streets. You politicians are going to get through the streets. Some have also argued in the time since that the mob was not really going to hang Mike Pence or harm any members of Congress. Taken as a whole, the video record does not support the claim that January 6th was an insurrection. In fact, it demolishes that claim. Perhaps, but like Jason, I've seen this kind of mob violence in other countries and can say that if I had been in the gallery, I absolutely would have thought that the life of every single person in that room was at risk. Jason's recollection was striking. But also striking was his clear vision on how to fix what's broken, a vision shared by his Republican colleagues in the Four Country Caucus, and one that can apply to all of us. Many of them followed through on that oath by giving everything to keep it. Representative Jason Crow, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for coming. Um, you know, I wanted to start with this super defining moment. I mean, for the country in the last few years, for you as a, a fresh, you were a freshman senator on January 6th. Is that correct? I had just started my, my second term. Right. So mm -hmm. two years in Congress and this impossible event. I mean, I can remember watching it on TV thinking mm. I, it, there was a moment there where I, I sort of realized some of my own American egotism, which I thought this is, this doesn't happen here. Yeah. And, and being a little bit overwhelmed. But the picture of you and Susan Wilde on the floor, and we'll show it uh, mm -hmm. when we cut this, but the picture of you and Susan Wilde on the floor is pretty amazing. And, and I hope that you could talk a little bit about that moment um, and what you were feeling and, and what your colleagues were feeling at the time. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I never imagined that we'd be in that situation and something like that would happen you know, in the Capitol on January 6th. No, no, nobody really saw that coming, e even though some of this was being planned out in the open. I, I personally wouldn't ever have thought this might that would happen. And it, you know, it has become kind of that, that, that defining image of January 6th, me comforting Susan Wilde, and there were some other images, too, of some of the police being beaten. Um, and it was, a, you know, it was a moment of compassion and, and doing what I think any, any person would do when their colleague is hurting and in distress. But uh, when I think about that time, actually, I think about the, the broader, uh, well, I think about a lot of things, actually. <laughs> think about, you know, the call to my family, 
when we realized that we were surrounded and didn't know whether we would we would make it out. I think about you know those 150 officers who were brutally beaten, uh, some of whom took their lives um, after that day because of the trauma. Others who you know are permanently disabled and have had to retire and 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 or, and or do other work. Uh, but the other thing that I think about is uh, the fact that a, a not small number of the people in that mob were my fellow veterans, our fellow veterans. And, I, and I've just thought a lot about how did we get here, right? How do you get from the point where, you know, you and me both uh, raised our right hand, took the oath, served with these brothers and sisters who we, who we would die for um, and, and had a, a real brotherhood and sisterhood with them. How do we then get to the point, fast forward a number of years later, where you have a door and on one side of the door they're trying to kill someone on the other side of the door. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, you and I have also been places where we've seen angry crowds on the street, and it, it is very scary. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, you know, I wonder what what were the you know you've been asked this question many times. Everybody in the room has been asked, "What were the emotions like?" And I know it's so hard to describe it, but yeah. you had a moment where you know I think you were asking your colleagues to take off their pins so they couldn't mm -hmm. be identified like you're you're sort of problem solving in this moment yeah. when it, thinking it's about to get super dynamic yeah um i hate to ask you to talk through your emotions at the moment but yeah. i'd love to hear more about what you were thinking as it was i kind of just got uh, well i i gave myself the opportunity to process the emotions i you know called called my family uh made that call uh, and, and all of us who are trapped in that gallery, there's a group of us called the gallery group. There's about 20 members who are all trapped in the house gallery for about 40 minutes, surrounded by the mob until a, um, a rescue team is able to get through and, and get us out. Uh, and that's when you you know have, see these images of the barricaded, literally the doll, the, the the you know the walls barricaded with furniture and, yeah. and trash cans and benches to try to keep the mob back. So that was the moment. Um, so I, I I had that moment of emotion and fear, but then I just quickly reverted back to of combat mode frankly you know when you get that that tunnel vision and you're just ultimately focused on on the task at hand and, and you get that checklist in your head of all the things that need to happen right so i just started running through the checklist you know the doors locked and directing people to lock the doors do we have any weapons available do we have any things to build to build the barricades you know, have the have the officers radioed uh out to out, you know to get a rescue team um uh, i started to think about actually started to think about whether or not if that mob broke through and it became a fight for our lives, right. whether or not those officers would actually use their weapons. Yeah. Right? Because you know that uh, you never know who can actually yeah. pull the trigger in the moment. You know, there's some, there some tough, tough dudes that right. talk tough. And when, when the moment comes, you don't know until you know. they can't do anything, right? Yeah. They, they freeze up. So I started to think for a moment, uh, do I need to um, you know, get a firearm from one of these officers if they freeze up and can't do what's necessary to get me and my colleagues out and, and use it myself. So just working through that list. And I did at one point talk to my colleagues and I said, you know, we got to take our pins off because we were these pins that identify us as members. Because if they break through, we have to, um, uh, we have to be able to blend in. But a very interesting moment, if I can just talk about a, a huge learning moment on that pin issue in particular for me, uh, just for a minute. I said that, and, and my fellow members took their pins off. After we were rescued and went back to our, our safe location, I was talking with my dear friend, uh, Lisa Blunt, Blunt Rochester from Delaware. And uh, Lisa's a, a black woman. And she told me, she said, uh, Jason, 
I appreciate what you were trying to do for us in a moment, but you have to realize there was no blending in for me. Wow, that's jarring. That the pen or not wouldn't have made a difference for me. And and that was just that this moment in time where I was like, wow. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, I, 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 I didn't think about that. And I didn't lead in the way that I should have led. And I wasn't the person that I should have been to my friends. Uh, and that uh, really forced me into a moment of, of um, reckoning that I have to understand my journey and how different it is from other people's journey. And we have to have, as a country, a much deeper conversation about some of these issues we've never dealt with on race, on privilege, uh, and how important it is. Yeah, you know, that's one of the, my favorite lines is, you know, society is the place where we're, we're all, I mean, this is fundamentally, this is classical liberalism. Sorry, we're getting a little bit philosophical suddenly. <laughs> it's all but, right, it's okay. But this place where the notion is we're all tolerant of each other's delusions. Mm. And, you know, that delusion is not to say that one's experiences are delusional, but I mean, mm-hmm. like, one's one's beliefs that we may find to be absurd, I mean, it's certainly a two-way street. Yeah. Um, and having been in so many places where people are intolerant of each other's minor religious differences... Right. Um, you truly come to value that. So that's so that's that's a that's a right. powerful moment, I imagine. Well, it's a it, it was a powerful moment for me personally. Uh, I, I think it's an opportunity, actually. Uh, I, I've started to talk about this thing um, that I call new American patriotism, because I actually believe in patriotism and I consider myself a patriotic person because I love this country, but I'm also willing to reconcile that with the fact that this country has deep flaws and that the promise of this country is unfulfilled. And I don't, I don't love it uh, in the way that some people talk about patriotism, right? Because some people use that word to, to, to whitewash or to sweep things under the rug and, and ignore our history or our problems. Um, I, I believe that it's possible that we have the intellect and the capacity as Americans to actually say we, we can be better, that that promise is unfulfilled and that the, the true greatness in our country, if we're going to be achieve that multicultural, pluralistic, you know, democratic society uh, in the way that it's fully envisioned, is to have honest conversations about that unfulfilled promise uh, and, and the impact of our history on that that still lives with us today. The same piece of paper that enshrined slavery and Jim Crow mm-hmm. was the same system that allowed us to overcome and become better and make improvements. And it is absolutely is, you know, this debate about whether it should be a living document. It seems self-evident to me that in fact is a living document. Yeah. Um, but it's a pretty remarkable system that's allowed those changes over that time. Yeah. Something that we feel very strongly about is we love the constitution. We believe mm-hmm. in the system deeply. Yeah. Um, because it's allowed us to continue to make progress and why would we stop making progress now? That is the genius of it, right? Yeah. Because our founders, our founders realized that the Constitution wasn't perfect, and they realized that our society would evolve and advance, and that there were things that would happen that they couldn't foresee, right? And that's why they actually created the amendments, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> black people were three-fifths of, the, of a person yeah. when it was created. Women didn't have the right to vote. Uh, um, so we, we have that built-in capacity for evolution and, and advancement. And, and if we don't take advantage of that, that's that's on us. In thinking about this more and more, and thinking about, you know, my experience overseas, there's there's sort of two large takeaways, and, and one is that, you know, you cannot strawman your your adversary. Um, mm-hmm. If you don't if you don't give your adversary the benefit of the doubt as a competent 
actor who has his own will and motivations and can execute on them, you know, you put lives at risk. But the other piece is, not but, and, um, where you're born just has a, it is just a fact. It has, it is a gigantic influence on your outcomes. Um, and thinking more about those two things recently, I mean, that's, I think something that we could do a little bit. That's part of what we want to do here is exploring that. Like what are the, the pursuit of equal opportunities, of course, is one of the most important roles of government, but is a super hard challenge. And we're definitely not there yet. Yeah. And, how is it that you know we are not as Americans giving each other more of the benefit of the doubt? Um, t- so again, that we can live together with our collective delusions in this yeah. in society. Well, I think there's a lot of things going on here. Like like so many of these things, it's complicated, right? Anyone who has these, and we're just in such a soundbite culture right now, and there there are there are so many, you know, snake oil uh, salesmen and, and women out there. You know, feeding an, an easy answer, an easy line, and it's not easy, right? Because we're we're complicated. We're a complicated society. There's a there's a layered history, um, and if somebody says that it's easy, then they're probably not telling you either either you or themselves the truth. But I, I grew up in a, a upper Midwestern family, Irish Catholic family, and a lot of construction workers. And I worked in construction myself growing up. Uh, and we struggled a lot economically, actually. I, I moved around. We lived in 10 different houses growing up. Couldn't, couldn't afford to, to buy a home. And, um, uh, you know, we started, worked at Arby's and McDonald's, you know, minimum wage jobs. And when I was working in construction, uh, you know, you get there on the site and you shake hands with some of the new folks you hadn't met if you're working with a different crew or something or other contractors on site. And uh, what you realize is that that's not just a handshake; that it's a callus check, mm-hmm. right? You're yeah. you're you're shaking that person's hands because you want to know who is this person, what kind of hands do they have? Right. Is this a working person? Is it one of me? Is it one of right. us? Yeah. Right. And that can tell you so much, right? Because so much of the challenge that we have right now is a challenge of identity, of tribe, of dignity, uh, and misunderstanding. That you know we're divided along these multiple fault lines: urban and rural, um, racial, um, parts of the country. I mean, these fault lines, and, and 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 a lot of them have been there all along. By the way, right? I mean, to say that this is new and novel is just not historically accurate. Right? We fought a civil war for God's sakes, uh, and we've had a civil rights movement and a suffrage movement. Uh, we've had all of these fights. Uh, because of the, the the nature of of the diversity and complexity of our society, but what's what is different right now? I think there are a couple of things that does make this a unique challenge. Is number one the uh, impact of technology and social media uh, that amplifies and in the algorithms that that um, distort people's views and perceptions uh, and um, Platform things that have been marginalized or kind of, kind of kept in kept in the margins for a long time. That's number one. Number two, I do think uh, there is substantial uh, there is substantial and understandable concern that I share about the loss of the American dream, right? And the, the communities that I grew up in, uh, the American dream is out of reach, right? This and, and this is the way that I define the American dream. It means that that every successive generation can do better. 
right? It's not, you know, chicken every pot and car in every port. It's that you believe that you will do better than your parents and that your children will do better than you. And a majority of Americans don't believe that anymore. And a majority of Americans are right, right? Because our economy does not serve them. Uh, we're, we're not structured that way. Uh, the, we've lost a lot of that up, upward mobility and opportunity. And there's frustration driving it. And then the third thing that's unique right now is that uh, these marginal or malignant views or extremist views uh, or, or conspiracy, outright conspiracy theorists, theories rather, uh, are being validated by people in high office, by the president, the former president, I should say, uh, by members of Congress, by other people uh, who, when you speak, when you hold these positions, people listen to you. And that's, that's somewhat novel. One of the things that's happening here is we have people trying to enact the hyperbole. So you, 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 you're try, you make all these, these sound bites, these mm-hmm. quick statements that will get attention but are absurd. And you start, you, you were saying them so often that they build, they sort of collect and, and you, have, you have officials trying to actually enact the hyperbolic things they were saying. And it's... Right. Well, sometimes people start to believe it themselves, right? If you, if, you know, people that are narcissists uh, or habitual liars will uh, ultimately start to believe their, 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 own, their own reality that they're, that they're trying to portray for others, I think. I mean, I'm, 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 you know, waxing, you know, psychological, <laughs> not <laughs> philosophical. I'm not no psychologist, but I've been around the block a few times, and I can kind of see how people work. Uh, and uh, that's a, that's a dangerous, certainly a dangerous um, dynamic. And then there are structural political challenges that are reinforcing uh, extremists within our system, right? Where uh, because of gerrymandering, actually, which I think is the single biggest threat to our democracy right now, because of gerrymandering. Uh, we have de- we have designed a Congress and state legislatures and others where there's no um, incentive to be rational or to tell the truth within certain districts. It's just to feed red meat to your base. But I really want to hear your just a little bit more about your story. I mm-hmm. mean, how you grew up, where your family came from, yeah. through the military into Congress. Can you talk about that journey? Yeah, sure. Well, um, I talked to her a little bit earlier about you know growing up and. I, uh, I actually enlisted in the National Guard uh, originally to help pay for college, right? And, and, you know, you know, in the service, everyone's like, ah, I did it for, you know, America and patriotism and God, God and country. And that can be true. You know, that can be true. And I, I, I did it for those reasons, too. But, uh, you know, there was a variety of motivations, right? And yeah. I, I, I saw that the, I grew up in Wisconsin. The Wisconsin National Guard had a 100% tuition grant program. <laughs> and, you know, I was working, you know, 20 hours a week at right. that point. Like, well, hell, that's a, that's a great deal, you know, 100% yeah. tuition. Uh, plus, you know, plus some, some beer money on the weekends, right? Because this is before 9-11. We weren't at war yet. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, signed on and, and took a semester off and went to basic training and AIT, and was doing the, the National Guard drill thing. Uh, and then um, then I joined ROTC later on because they had this simultaneous membership program where you can do ROTC and National Guard at the same time. Because uh, I liked it. I, I actually liked doing it, and I was going to do ROTC and become an officer in the Guard uh, and probably go to law school or something. Um, then 9-11 happened and uh, decided uh, to go active duty, to transition from a National Guard contract to active duty. And that's where kind of that different motivation kicked in that we had been attacked 
and I didn't want other people to do my fighting for me, uh, and, I, and, I, and I wanted to do my part. Uh, so went active duty and asked for infantry and asked for airborne and asked for ranger, and the Army was happy to oblige all of us. <laughs> <laughs> so next thing you know, I'm a, an airborne infantry rifle platoon leader leading a platoon of paratroopers from the 82nd Airborne Division in the invasion of Iraq. I was there for about 10 months in the invasion and then doing counterinsurgency afterwards. Uh, and, um, and then I ultimately was recruited into special operations and went to the 75th Ranger Regiment, did two did, did two uh, rotations with the Joint Strike Force in, in Afghanistan. So why'd you leave and what did you want to do next? Well, I was uh, getting married at the time. <laughs> so my, uh, my then wife, uh, or then soon-to-be wife, uh, uh, wanted to come back to Colorado and settle here, you know, born and raised. And uh, so I put my, my time in, uh, put my, my notice in, and we, uh, we uh, came back to Colorado, and I used my veterans' benefits to go to law school. Nice. And I became a yeah. lawyer, and we started a family, and I served uh, as a lawyer for um, about uh, almost a decade, about nine years as a lawyer. Uh, and then, uh, then Donald Trump was elected president. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I feel like a lot of these stories end that way. And then Donald Trump is like the president. <laughs> then, my, then my life changes. Yeah, ended and began that way. Right. Thinking about the soldiers you led and some of the people that you worked with, like what, what is that? I mean, there are surely some of them supported, continue, did support. Maybe they don't, I don't know. But when yeah. you think about those, those people that you knew then, um, mm-hmm. how, do you, how, how do you think through that? Like, you know, they, yeah. they certainly, you know, they're, they have their reasons, and, and how do we how do you reach them to communicate with them, um, yeah. to to suggest, hey, I think this is. Well, you certainly don't reach. Well, I mean, I, listen, I was born and, and raised in a in a very conservative Republican family, and the people that I love uh, in this world, some of the dearest, closest people I love in this world, are people that voted and still support Donald Trump. Um. So I have kind of my own built-in focus group, you could say. Yeah. Uh, so I think what you have to come, the first thing you need to do is understand that people do it for for different reasons. Right? It's not a monolith, uh, and um, if people are doing it for racist or misogynistic or bigoted reasons, then I will not tolerate that. Uh, then then you will call that out uh, for what it is, and, and you will fight it because uh, we will not we, we cannot tolerate uh, th- those those trends or those motivations. Then there's a whole different category of people that are frustrated, who have felt unheard, whose lives have not turned out like they imagined, the, that, that know that the system is not serving them well, and in, in many ways they're right, uh, and, uh, and felt like that frustration uh, would, would um, be given a voice in Donald Trump. Now, Donald Trump, in my view, is, uh, um, you know, I don't mean to be hyperbolic here, but, you know, I think Donald Trump serves nobody but himself. And, um, and and will not be the answer to any of those folks' problems. In fact, we'll, we'll make it worse. That's, that's my view, and that's why I'm a Democrat, of course, and decided to run for office. But uh, the, the, the frustration of those folks is real, uh, and, and, and you have to listen to it, and you've got to engage. And, and the answer is not to malign uh, or, or to disparage or, or to you know, attack those people personally, but the answer is to understand why they believe they, the way they do, why they're voting, why they think that's the answer, 
and understand their needs and, and to, to make the case as to why uh, they should, you know, go a different direction. So I think it, it requires uh, some degree of, of kind of understanding who, who you're dealing with and the motivations and addressing it on people's terms. What? I just realized I was, again, kind of going on one of my tangents, and I didn't answer the question about, about the men that I served with. Yeah. And it was all men because it was an infantry unit. And it wasn't opened up yet at that point. Listen, I, I, those are they're brothers to me, right? Um, they, they, those men saved my life on occasion. I risked my life for them. Uh, we fought together. Uh, we, we survived together. Um, and, and they represent this country, right? People from the east, the west, the north, the south, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, straight, gay, you name it, rich, poor. Right? That was the melting pot. That was America. When I, when I think about America, I actually kind of imagine my platoon mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, in, in a lot of ways. And, um, and, and yeah, I know a lot of those folks disagree with me vehemently on politics because people can go through the same experience and, and pull something different from it or ascribe a different meaning to it. Um, and, and I understand that too. But I have compassion for them and I, I um, will do whatever I need to do to, to serve them too. What are the structural things that you think will make things better that probably aren't that hard? Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there's structural things in, in the way that our elections work, right? Like we, we should pass the the Equal Rights Act, the you know the Equal Rights um, Act amendment. We should pass the civil or, or uh, the um, John Lewis Civil Rights Act to make sure that disenfranchised communities have access uh, to the ballot. Um, we should do nationally what um, Colorado has done actually for a while, and that is um, nonpartisan redistricting. We actually have a uh, a, a commission that does it. Of, of Democrats, Republicans, and independents that, that's then uh, reviewed by the courts to make sure that it's fair and meets the constitutional requirements. So, you know, the, the, the first day that I saw what my new district was going to look like after redistricting was the first day my constituents saw the district, right? Yeah. Uh, in, in Colorado, you know, politicians do not choose their constituents. It's, it's, it's the way it should be, the, the opposite. So we should do things like that. And I touched on gerrymandering, right? Um, if, if you gerrymander a district and you have, you know, a, a deep red or a deep blue district for that matter, what, the, what, what is the incentive to work together, right? What's the incentive for somebody in a, you know, R plus, tw- plus 40 district or D plus 40 or 50 district? To, to reach across the aisle and to compromise in the way that our system requires. Uh, there, there is very little incentive to do that. And that's what's happened. You look at the scatter chart of districts. You know, I think uh, there's this, this chart that shows you know, a dot for every district. Mm-hmm. And, and they used to be all kind of lumped in the middle. And in the last 50 years, they've all gone to the edges. And there's only like 20 or 30 dots in the middle of kind of swing districts or moderate districts. So that drives the rhetoric as well. But the last piece is, is just, that's all things that can be legislated. Uh, the last piece is, is leadership and um, just making it a priority and, and trust. And I was talking about earlier how trust is broken and how we don't trust each other and we're kind of all going to ideological corners. You know, we, we in 2018 uh, formed the Four Country Caucus, F-O-R Country. And it's the, the first 
bipartisan veterans caucus in the House. And not many people have heard of, about it, but it's a very powerful caucus. We have about 30 members now, uh, roughly the same number of Democrats and Republicans. And we've created a pledge, a pledge because, you know, obviously us veterans like pledges. And it's very simple, actually. It's that we won't, won't attack each other and malign each other. We won't campaign against each other. We'll spend time outside of work getting to know each other and each other's families, right? Because if you're going to dinner with somebody, you're going to a picnic yeah. on Saturday with right. one of your colleagues, you're likely not to get on cable news and say bad things about right. that person, right? right. Yeah. You're just not going to do it. And we're going to carry each other's legislation. So the Four Country Caucus has done that. We're growing. We're showing by example the rest of the Congress that, that, that this can work. And we've passed over 75 bills uh, with each other the last four years. So we're legislating and governing. And it works. And what's amazing about it is it's not a caucus of moderates. Right? It's not an ideological caucus. We have very liberal, progressive people. We have very conservative people. But we still make that work. And even if you have two members that are on opposite ends, but they treat each other well, they, they, they don't attack each other personally uh, because you, you, you know your fellow veteran in this context is coming to it with good faith. Even if you only agree on 10% of the stuff, that's enough. Absolutely. You, you, can, you can work yeah. in that 10% and that's progress. What a perfect metaphor for like, the, I mean, we need to expand that and we'll solve all our problems. I, I think so. <laughs> Maybe not all of our problems, but a bunch of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Jason, thank you very much. That's, you know, some civil engagement. That's exactly what we're trying to do here. Sounds like that's what you guys are doing. Well, I've enjoyed it and would love to, to do another one. We will. Yeah. We'll do one Thanks, soon. Ian. Thanks, Appreciate it. Appreciate it very much. Yeah, thank you.